0: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Alastair Nott about his book Sensory Motor Cognition and Natural Language Syntax, in which he explores the relation between perceptual experience and the way we express this in language. Specifically, he argues that there is a profound similarity between the sequence of sensory motor processes in a physical action and the way the corresponding sentence is generated within minimalist syntax. In this interview... We discuss the basis for this claim and explore some of the potential consequences, and we consider some of the risks and possible rewards of attempting to unify such disparate bodies of research. I'm delighted to welcome Alistair Knott from the University of Otago, New Zealand, to talk about his book Sensory Motor Cognition and Natural Language Syntax, in which he explores the potentially rich relation between physical experience and linguistic structure. Alistair, this is a fascinating line of attack, but a rather unusual interdisciplinary synthesis, how did you come to be working on this question?
1: Well, I started off studying psychology and and then sort of veered into linguistics and computational well, linguistics, to start with computational linguistics, and then and ended up for a little while working as a comp- as straight computational linguist. But I never lost sight of, of the connection with psychology. and Even while I was doing my day job as a computational linguist, I was always thinking in the back of my mind about how language could be implemented in the brain. So that's just been something which is taking away as a research interest for me, basically since I started uh, my research career.
0: And this um, work covers quite a lot of ground theoretically in that respect, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, so it, it, there's an enormous amount of, of literature that you need to cover if you're trying to connect the, the, the sensory system and the perceptual system and the motor system to language, and we know that there is a connection, because clearly we can talk about what we see and what we do, but if you're going to try and articulate what's involved in, in interfacing between the, the sensory system and language, you need to introduce an enormous amount of background material, both about current models of sensory cognition and motor cognition and about current models of language. So that's why I felt that the project was a sort of book-sized project. I needed half the book basically just to introduce the background theories that I was going to be employing. and then. The other half of the book is trying to connect those two bodies of theory together. So that's the real sort of aim of the book is to is to try and bring two disciplines which don't really traditionally have much to do with each other into connection by creating links between theories in the mo- of the motor system and the sensory system and theories within theoretical syntax, theoretical linguistics.
0: From some perspectives, one of the more surprising things is the particular syntactic framework that you're using, because this is quite a... Well, hardcore generative uh, approach. You're, you're focusing on minimalism, although you also do draw upon some usage-based work. Does that reflect a prior uh, preference on your part, sort of, for the aesthetics of that kind of analysis?
1: Well, well, no, actually. So uh, when I when I trained as a computational linguist, I did study uh, Chomsky linguistics, generative grammar, a GB sort of style linguistics, and at that time, I really wasn't very convinced by it. I, I much preferred going off and writing. Prolog programs that did definite clause grammars and things like that, and feature-based unification grammar formalism and things like that. But it was only when I started to get interested in embodied models of language and cognition more generally uh, that I, I became reinterested in, in the Chomskyan paradigm. And suddenly I went back and sort of and read it up because it seemed to me that the Chomskyan model is a really interesting vehicle for a strongly embodied model of, of language and of syntax. Because if you, if you think about it, if, if what the embodied linguists are trying to say is that language is, is deeply connected to the, the sensory and the motor system. And if that's true, well, then because we all have the same sensory and motor systems, you expect there to be uh, uh, observable universals across languages. And the theory that takes syntactic universals most seriously, as everyone knows, is the Chomskyan theory. They, they think that there are underlying kind of declarative representations of sentences, which are largely the same, no matter what surface structure uh, a, a language happens to have, so you can articulate a model of embodied cognition, which really allows you to state sort of um, strong links between language and the sensory motor system very well within a Chomskyan framework. And it seemed to me that, that there was unexplored territory there. No one had really tried to uh, to take an embodied view of Chomskyan nativism. Most Chomskyans traditionally thought about universals as deriving from some sort of language-specific innate knowledge in the brain. But as we know from lots of contemporary neuroscience, there's no very good evidence for a particular part of the brain or a module that's, that's just involved in language. So that idea didn't seem to be plausible. But on the other hand, if you think that the kind of linguistic generalizations or syntactic generalizations that the Chomskyan model identifies, maybe due to the fact that language is closely grounded in the sensory motor system, well, that seemed to open up a new uh, area of research, a new set of hypotheses. And it's those hypotheses that I wanted to explore in this
0: book. You mentioned that it hasn't uh, received a lot of prior attention, that that idea, that possibility of connections. Um, Do you think that's just because these two disciplines haven't really interfaced with one another? Or do you think people have certain prior theoretical commitments that might get in the way?
1: Probably a bit of both. I I do think
0: that it's
1: just there's probably not a a lot of people who know about both of these bodies of theory. And that's why in the book, I'm I'm very concerned to lay out each body of theory, current sensory motor neuroscience on the one hand and sort of reasonably um, modern Chomsky and minimalism on the other from scratch, basically. So you should be able to uh, uh, get to grips with Well, at least you should be introduced to both of those two areas. Um, even if you don't know one or the other, in in the book, so I think that part of part of the issue really is that there aren't very many people who know about both of these fields, and it just happens almost sort of by coincidence that I was exposed to them both, and then started thinking about the links. But I don't I don't think it's only that uh, it's not just a matter of, of, of people's training not exposing them to you know that mixture of of theoretical disciplines. I think I think there also is a very strongly empiricist Kind of slant to a lot of modern neuroscience. Well, I I don't know if that's true, but I think that there are certainly lots of neuroscientists who are quite um, sceptical about Chomsky's claims. I I suppose my my position is is to is to try and be reconciliationist in some way and say that there's there's some way of understanding those claims, even within the you know even using the, the terminology of sort of current neuroscience. So that that's the sort of novel. Direction
0: that I'm trying to take. Absolutely, yes. Um, I mean, another aspect of that is that when you when you discuss the relevant uh, neuroscientific data, which I think you present predominantly in Chapter Three, uh, the research that's related to the, the learning and memory of sensory motor sequences, it, it's almost bewildering in its complexity, the sheer number of different attributes of cognition or neurocognition that are relevant or potentially relevant. How did you kind of navigate through that forest of data, well, forest of theories and proposals to to come to a, a coherent story of your own?
1: Well, the approach that I tried to take was to focus on the simplest possible proposition, how a human apprehends... A simple concrete proposition and I picked the simplest one that neuroscientists have written about and that's this uh, proposition of an agent grabbing an object so the the exact uh, scenario that I can fit is a man grabbing a cup and I was interested in the processes that are involved in someone apprehending that both from the perspective of an observer watching someone else grab a cup but equally from the perspective of an agent actually performing the action themselves. Because if you're an agent, you can apprehend the fact that you have grabbed the cup yourself when you do it. You're aware of what you've done. So my approach was to, in some sense, completely limit my focus to that one sentence and then go away into the literature in neuroscience and look for all of the relevant processes and all of the relevant studies that address particular aspects of that apprehension process. And it's kind of interesting because neuroscientists don't tend to address the whole proposition, the apprehension of the whole proposition in one go. That's too big a subject matter for a neuroscientist. Instead, you find neuroscientists who are interested in specialized bits of the process. So, for instance, there are some neuroscientists who are interested in visual attention and visual object classification, you know, which would be useful and necessary for identifying um, the agent you know, as, as a third party. Or the target object and then there are other neuroscientists who are interested in the process of selecting a target um, amongst competing alternative targets for reaching to and there are other ones who are interested in the dynamics of the the reaching process and other um, theorists are interested in how it is that you can can, um, identify an object by touch using the haptic modality so all of these bits of work get carried on somewhat independently of one another obviously there are connections But my goal was kind of unusual in the sense that I was trying to synthesize a model of the apprehension of this whole proposition-sized element. So that was my structuring principle, and and that's the, the path that I took in my literature review. And to me, the interesting thing that came out of this that I don't think has been really widely acknowledged in the neuroscience community is that there are strong sequential dependencies or sequential orderings that you can identify in this apprehension process. So for instance, you have to say, and this is well known, that you have to attend to an object before you can classify it in any detail, Uh, but you also have to classify an object before you can reach for it in any detail because you need to program a detailed reach and grasp movement, and it's only after you reach for an object that you can obviously apprehend it in the haptic modality. So Those are just a few examples of um, sort of partial sequential dependencies, partial orderings uh, that you can identify. And when you put all these together, I think there's quite a convincing case that you can make that apprehending and reach-to-grasp action, whether you're doing it yourself or watching it, involves a rather well-structured kind of canonical sequence of sensory and motor operations. And my idea is that clearly there needs to be some Compression principle to allow this vast sort of manifold of sensory and motor data that you get when you're actually perceiving an event in the world to be squeezed into the sim- uh, symbolic format that you get in a, in a natural language sentence, which is very, very highly simplified and very uh, um, discreet and very symbolic. And my idea is that the, one of the key principles underlying the compression that goes on when you're converting from sensory motor modality information to linguistic information, is to do with these dependencies, these uh, serial, the serial structure of the sensory motor process that's involved in apprehending episodes in the world. So just to summarize, I, I guess the principle that I used to guide my uh, review of the literature of neuroscience was firstly to look at a specific episode, a specific simple proposition, a person grabbing an object. And secondly, to focus on the the, the temporal sequencing of the the sensory motor processes involved in apprehending that episode.
0: And uh, although you focus on the single episode, uh, you definitely make the argument that uh, that sequential ordering, those sequential constraints, would also apply to, well, at least to general motor actions in terms of things like reattention. Is that that correct?
1: Yes. I I, I mean, in the book, my, my aim is to... Uh, express a general hypothesis about the link between sensory motor processing and syntactic representations, and I only illustrate that general uh, relationship in any detail for, for this one example uh, episode of a person grabbing a cup. But at the same time, I want to, to state something which is general enough to make predictions about, other, about the relationship between sensory motor cognition and syntax other um, sentences, for instance, so that that can be tested. And again, there's another thing which which attracted me to the minimalist model. It's very, very serious about um, trying to to, to construct syntactic representations using a very pared-down, minimal set of theoretical mechanisms. And what I try to do in the book is to look for something analogously simple and minimal in the sensory motor domain. And I think that, again, this, this temporal ordering is, is the thing that I focused on. So even though I only discussed it in any detail for the Reach to Grasp episode, my idea is that when you apprehend any concrete event in the world, that involves a sequence of sensory motor operations, and each operation generates reafferent perceptual Representations and those operate and those uh, uh, representations allow the programming of, of another sensory motor operation and so sensory motor operations are naturally chained together into sequences and this is an idea which was originated by Dana Ballard and colleagues and they call this um, this uh, principle the, the principle of date routines the idea that cognition at a certain timescale naturally decomposes into sequences or sort of standard stereotypical sequences of rather small, minimal, sensory-motor operations. And my general claim in the book is that the building blocks of sensory-motor cognition, which are individual sensory, sensory or motor operations and the sensory uh, effects that they bring about, correspond to the building blocks which are identified in minimalism of syntactic structure, specifically of, of logical forms which are the uh, uh, language-independent levels of syntactic representation. So my claim is that log- logical forms and minimalism are built out of X-bar schemas. Roughly speaking, at least in early minim- minimalism, it looks that way. So the X-bar schema is the, is the building block of logical form structures and syntactic structures at that underlying level. S- Sensory-motor experience mm. is broken down into deictic operations, individual sensory motor operations. And my, my general claim, which is a, a very kind of ambitious and far-reaching claim, is that each X-bar schema in a logical form representation of a concrete sentence corresponds to one deictic operation, one sensory or motor operation, in the sensory motor process through which the episode, which the sentence describes, was apprehended.
0: I'd um, I'd like to come back shortly, if I may, to that that question of how the relation holds between minimalism and the, and the sensory motor experience. But before I do it, I'd like to just ask, um, on the question of generalisation, you talk about in- embodiment, embodied cognition, as a well, something that, that you discuss very strongly and sort of enthusiastically. Uh, how how strongly does your proposal though, actually rely on embodiment as a as a central assumption? Well, I,
1: I certainly don't want to claim that every sentence in any natural language is uh, derives directly from sensory motor routines or, or or schemas or something like that. Because clearly, there's this whole world of of abstract sentences and sentences that don't report that don't directly report things that you can perceive in the world. So, in that sense. It, it's only the concrete senses that I'm thinking about, but that's just a methodological decision. I mean, you might, I, I like the idea that that language—I mean, language has to have evolved in us. The the, the biological uh, capacity for language that's in our brain has to have evolved on top of something that was already there in our prelinguistic ancestors. And I like the idea, along with embodied cognitive scientists, that language used the sensory motor system as a preadaptive platform. I think that's a very appealing idea. And in some sense, it's rather optimistic to think that because the central motor system is is almost certainly the uh, neural mechanism that we know most about uh, as neuroscientists. And so in the way, I'm exploring this rather optimistic idea that key sort of structural aspects of language reflect the structure of the central motor system, you know, as it's been revealed by by neuroscience over the last 20, 30 years. That's that's the basic idea. But at the same time, I, I, I'm aware that there are these, abs- you know, that there's a world of abstract sentences, and my position on those is basically, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a, a cognitive linguist, but there's this large body of work in cognitive linguistics on how the semantics, and possibly even the, the syntax of abstract sentences, may be grounded in, in uh, very sort of deep-rooted metaphors in more concrete spatial domains and so you think naturally of people like Lakoff and Johnson metaphors we live by and things like that and and so i'd like to sort of when i'm asked about abstract sentences i, I refer to this idea that abstract sentences may be uh, grounded in metaphorical metaphorically in in, in concrete um, sensory motor domains but having 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 said that i think that methodologically way to proceed is not to start off looking at abstract sentences, which is what a lot of cognitive linguists do, rather I think the place uh, to start is by looking in great, great detail at at very simple concrete sentences. Because to me, if you're going to be able to uh, investigate the hypothesis that abstract sentences are grounded in concrete domains, you first of all need to have a very, very good and detailed model of what's going on in the very simplest concrete domains. So methodologically, my approach is to focus on those concrete domains first, and use people like Lakoff and Johnson as a sort of look ahead to give some sort of guarantee that if things work out for concrete sentences, there's a story that's, that, you know, that we're going to be able to tell a story about the more
0: abstract ones. Sure. Yes. I mean, no, I really ask just because when you when you discuss around page two hundred of your book, these uh, more abstract sentences, uh, I think the example you give is the company acquired a subsidiary. Mm you dis- discussed briefly the idea of embracing the notion of sensory motor operations within a more general category of cognitive operations. Oh, yes, yeah. And it um, was interesting, the idea, because you know, presumably if it, if it were the case that uh, cognition was not in some sense completely embodied even for physical actions, there would be a, a kind of abstraction that one could posit there that would enable you, maybe at the cost of a, of a certain uh, loss of precision, to maintain the essence of your theory. Mm,
1: yeah, uh, absolutely. So, that, that, yeah, I should have mentioned that as well. So, al- almost sort of s- separately from this issue about yeah, uh, the metaphorical extensions of, of, of concrete domains, I like the idea that propositions are experienced through sequences of sensory motor operations. I'd like to be able to generalize away from sensory motor operations to, to cognitive operations more generally. And those might involve, for instance, operations of putting the brain into a certain mode or operations of querying long-term memory with a particular query or an operation of getting a response to one of those queries or an, an operation of, of, of going into a mode where you are going to entertain your own desires rather than actually performing something or apprehending something in the world. So th- this idea of, of, of Dana Ballard and colleagues that perceiving concrete episodes in the world involves a a sort of rather discrete, well-structured, stereotypical, canonical sequence of sensory or motor operations. I quite like the idea of generalizing that, to say that the operations needn't all be sensory or motor. They might also involve internal changes of of state in the brain, or they may involve uh, actions that have an effect inside the brain, for instance, of posing a query to long-term memory, or something like that. My idea is that if you're trying to account for particular projections in minimalism, that sometimes those internal operations, or those more cognitive rather than sensory motor operations, uh, are often quite good candidates. So for instance, something I don't talk about a lot in the book, but minimalism are pretty unified in thinking that there's a tense projection now as well as, in, well, that's one of the, the standard components of the left periphery in any logical form representation, and TP of something. And I like the idea that tense projections denote a cognitive operation of deciding, basically, whether uh, you as the agent are going to attend to the world and interface with the world directly, which would be something like the present tense, or whether uh, the agent is going to instead interface with a memory of the world, which would be something like a past tense, and those kind of cognitive operations are well well documented and quite well attested by neuroscientists. So again what I want to do is to bring these two uh, findings in different areas together so that there's good linguistic evidence for a tense projection and quite separately from that in neuroscience. Neuroscientists have discovered that there are different modes that the brain can be in, one where it's attending to the environmental stimuli, basically the sensors have been turned on, the motor system is on, and another mode where those things are kind of turned off, and the representational media in the brain are being used by the memory system. And so you're either in memory mode or in experience mode to simplify. So the idea is that tense projection may um, correspond to the operation that sets the brain up in either experience mode or or memory mode. So that's just an example. But that just goes to make the point that I'd like to generalize it ultimately away from just sensory and motor operations to more cognitive uh, operations.
0: Sure, yes. Um, This is maybe an unfair question because I think it's beyond the scope of what what you actually discuss in the book. But given what you've just said, I have to ask, um, do you think that the species specificity of language is, is connected to availability of different kinds of modes or different kinds of cognitive operations or, or, or did, would it reside somewhere else?
1: Well, uh, that's a, a very interesting question. I mean, in a sense, what I'm trying to do, I, I'm thinking about, you know, I, I think a lot about the difference between our pre-linguistic ancestors, you know, and we we can take chimps you know, or great apes as, uh, as, as standing in for those in some ways, although it's, you know, it's not completely principled to do that, but quite often that gets done. What's the difference between us and chimps? At the level of sensory motor processing, there's actually not an awful lot of difference. I think that's kind of like a, a rough and ready kind of generalization about the way neuroscientists feel. I mean, neuroscientists use the, uh, the the primate sensory motor system as a sort of guide for what might be going on in the human one. You know, they use macaque models a lot, for instance, and chimp models. So the question, you know, often arises, you know, well, what's what's changed in, in, in humans that allows us to have this rich representational system. And in some sense, you know, I, I, I like to tell a, a very minimal story about what's changed because evolution hasn't had that long to, to make any actual um, biological adaptations in the brain. So roughly speaking, my, my suggestion is that at least for simple sensory motor, uh, simple Concrete sentences of the kind that can be directly exper- yeah. that, whose semantics can be directly experienced in the world. I want to say that the sensory motor processes going on in, let's say, a, a, a chimpanzee may not be that different. Of course, I'm, I'm exaggerating. They may not be that different from the ones which are going on in us. And I like the idea that what's evolved in humans is just a bank of connections between the areas of the brain that represent sensory and motor operations and their their side effects between those areas and a a, a general purpose area which um, encodes arbitrary behavioral gestures which could be um, manual or could be articulatory which allows associations to be learned between sensory motor stimuli and arbitrary gestures whether they be articulatory or or, or manual or whatever. I like the idea that even in our pre-linguistic ancestors There was some ability in those creatures to not only execute sensorimotor sequences and experience the world, experience propositions in the world, but also to store the motor sequences that they were executing in some form of semantic working memory and replay those. And again, the original motivation for that has got nothing to do with language at all. This idea that you're able to rehearse, an agent is able to rehearse the sensory motor sequence that they executed. It's rather to do with, with memory. Uh, it, it's known that uh, in order to, be able to store any any um, proposition in memory, it needs to be relayed to the hippocampus, and the hippocampus needs to get the whole episode very fast because hippocampal learning happens through a mechanism uh, called LTP requires representations to be active within about 100 milliseconds of one another. So if you, if you perceive an event, that may take a lot longer than 100 milliseconds. It may take you know, on the order of seconds or tens of seconds or maybe minutes. So there's good evidence just in neuroscience for the existence of some sort of working memory buffer where episode representations are stored, and then those things have to be replayed to the hippocampus in order to be stored in more permanent memory. And my idea is that that replay operation, that replay mechanism which takes a centromotor sequence and replays it to the hippocampus may have even been present in our prelinguistic ancestors. And that all we're doing is, uh, that all that happened in the evolution of human language is that, that replay mechanism got co-opted for a new purpose which was communicative rather than related to storage. So in, in, in my sort of cartoon-like perception of what went on in, in human language evolution, what happened was that we evolved a mechanism for replaying sensory motor sequences in a special mode where sensory motor signals can have overt behavioral learned side effects and and that that would be human language so in the book, along with an account of a sort of declarative account of a, a, a sort of declarative mapping or a potential declarative mapping between sensory motor. Processes and, and syntactic structures. I also provide an account of what might be going on in, in the process of sentence generation, uh, and that process involves replaying a stored sensory motor sequence in a special mode, where sensory motor signals can invoke phonological side effects, basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, we can't do justice in the time we have here to, to the, the full detail of your proposal, but I think it's the the half the, the of your book and maybe the most fascinating proposal in there is the idea that what we would think of, particularly from a minimalist point of view, as purely linguistic operations, and indeed operations that rely on language-specific attributes, might be analogous or isomorphic or even uh, exacted from uh, various cognitive or sensory motor operations. Uh, How how deep do those parallels go, in your view? Well,
1: uh, exactly as you said, the the, the position I'm trying to argue for in the book is that Chomsky and linguists, and you know, in particular in the minimalist era, are actually kind of studying the sensory motor system without realizing it. That, that's the kind of that, that's one sort of takeaway message that you can that you can sort of abstract from the book. My, my idea is that you know, if if it's true that there are these strong links between language and the sensory motor system, which is what embodied linguists would believe then studying language should tell you about some of the properties of the sensory-motor system. And my basic argument is, is that the the universal structures which Chomsky and well, minimalist linguists identify in natural language syntax, at least a lot of them, or some of them, are sensory-motor in origin. They, they have the form that they do because they're, because language very strongly reflects sensory-motor constraints. Literally, when you're reading out a sentence, when you're, when you're producing a sentence, you are rehearsing a stored sentry motor routine and a lot of the, the structures in the sentence are, are, are reflections of, of structures in the stored sentry motor routine. So just to give one example, there's this well-known idea in and minimalism that noun phrases or determiner phrases have to raise to get case to positions which are outside VP, which is somehow up, up in the left periphery Often uh, agreement projections or something like that, and that in the in the Chomsky model is just put forward as a principle which allows a nice economical model of lots of different languages of the structure of lots of different languages. But I'd like to say that there, that there's actually a motor basis behind this idea that noun phrases have to raise to get case, which is that roughly speaking, a, a right branching. Um, structure of XPs in LF to me corresponds to a sequence of sensory motor operations. And the principle that noun phrases have to raise to get case to me is better described in sensory motor terms as, or can be described in sensory motor terms by the principle that you have to attend to an object before it can participate in a sensory motor routine. So, for grasping a cup, for instance, there's an agent and a, and a, and a target object, the cup. And before you can perform the grasp action, you have to have attended to the agent and to the cup, and then you can um, execute the grasp action.
0: This is a very interesting idea because it has some sort of meta theoretical implications doesn 't it because the idea of the Chomskyan program was to study language as a window into the mind, uh, and what you 're saying seems to be that while syntacticians thought that what they were studying was merely the underpinnings of syntax in the mind uh, that actually this goes this goes somewhat deeper and in some sense language is, is accidentally giving us a window into something else that would have been uh, considered to be outside of language by the, by the people who were originally advocating this approach
1: uh, yeah I think I think that's right I, I mean I've always I've always liked that idea that I think that the reason why I'm interested in linguistics is because I think it can inform us about mental processes language can inform us about mental processes more generally, and that's one of the absolute um, motivations behind the original work in, in sort of you know in linguistics that, that Chomsky and his colleagues undertook. So, yeah, I, I very, I de- very definitely kind of trying to sort of pick up on that exciting idea that, that language can tell us a lot about cognition in general, and I think that's that's certainly not a new idea. You know, you, you know even these days, uh, cognitive linguists like like to think that way. The, the difference in, in what I'm doing is is really just in, in an emphasis, what I'm trying to do is to look in great detail at correspondences between non-linguistic and linguistic processes just for one particular example episode, one which is well-studied by sensory motor neuroscientists. Again, I'd like to frame the, the correspondences that I've found. I've tried to frame them in a general way to try and create a, a testable uh, general hypothesis about the relationship between language and these non-linguistic sensory motor or cognitive um, processes.
0: Yes, indeed. In the last couple of chapters of the book, you uh, also draw upon, uh, outside of the minimalist tradition, other approaches to language, notably including connectionist modelling. Um, What aspects of this approach are helpful to your overall project?
1: Well, I'm very aware, you know, having, having come to Minimalist or Chomskyan linguistics from the other perspective, in a way. I mean, most of my work uh, has has been as a computational linguist, and those sorts of people tend well have have got very different approaches there. Statistical linguists, they're they're very empiricist by by and large, And, and that made me very aware of the difficulties of minimalism or Chomskyan linguistics as it's standardly thought of deal with the kind of phenomena that statistical models of language are really good at, at dealing with. And I'm thinking, for instance, you know, something I go into in the book, Jack and Doff's criticisms of the Chomskyian program and its inability to deal with idioms in particular, and surface structures more generally, to me that's a very telling criticism. And, and if I was going to adopt minimalism uh, as, as, as a way of expressing an embodied model of language, I think I, I found it was very necessary to address these well-known um, criticisms of, of minimalism. My approach in the book is to try and formulate a, a, a version of, of minimalism which is compatible with a, a model of sentence processing. So jumpscare and syntactic models are sort of Jomsky and linguists always say that they're not trying to model sentence processing, rather they're trying to uh, express a declarative model of the structure of a language or the structure of human languages. And the question that has always been raised, especially in, in, you know, by psychologists and psycholinguists, of you know how does that help you, you tell a story about sentence processing, sentence acqui- and, and uh, syntax acquisition as well, and inference there are some empiricist models of that, which are also very good. The way I interpret um, a minimalist model of LF actually happens to to, uh, to be quite compatible with a model of sentence processing, because my whole idea is that an LF structure sentence describes a sensory motor process. So the whole idea in my interpretation of, of the declarative LF structure is that it's telling us about a process. And so that makes it quite compatible with the story of sentence processing. As I said before, um, I've articulated this in a model of sentence generation, and there the model just is that, when you're generating a sentence, what you're doing is rehearsing the sensory motor sequence in a special mode where you can have side effects that emerge in actual gestures, in actual communicative gestures, actual phonological or articulatory gestures. And that's something that we've, uh, well, that I, I, I spell out in the book. And there's a, there's a paper that I wrote with some colleagues which actually implements, it describes an implemented connectionist model of this um, to show that it, it, it really can work. You can you can build a model, which is sort of you know a simulated baby, basically that's trained on pairs of sensory motor sequences and associated sequences of words, and learns to um to to read out those sensory motor sequences in different ways in different languages. When it's trained on SVO and VSO and uh, v, uh, VOS um, uh, languages, it can learn to do it can learn to, to, to generate sentences in the appropriate uh, constituent ordering so that's the that that's the account of of sentence processing and that's the way I try to incorporate references to usage based and constructionist uh, models of language so basically this century this um this neural network model of sentence processing what well, sentence generation and syntactic development if you're a, an empiricist linguist if you're a connectionist linguist and you know about simple recurrent network models of sentence processing and so on. You'd be able to look at this model and you'd be able to recognize it as a sort of reasonably bona fide connectionist model of sentence processing. But I think that if you're a a minimalist linguist, you should be able to squint at this uh, connectionist model and say, oh, okay, I can see how this is a model of the process by which an infant learns the mapping between LF and PN in their particular mother tongue. So... If you you know if if you buy the idea that LF representations essentially motor sequences, then you can look at this model and see it as a model of the processes by which LFPF mapping is learned by infants. So this is my sort of conciliationist <laughs> um, hope is that you can build a model which captures um, the interesting things that minimalist linguists have to say about um, generalizations between languages. That have their root in, well, in the, the structure of the human brain, basically. But at the same time, it also allows articulation of the the representations of surface structure um, that are so easy to uh, to characterize in, inside connectionist models and statistical models of sentence processing. So my my, my ultimate aim. <laughs> Is, is to try and bring about some sort of reconciliation between Chomskyan linguists and empiricist linguists. There's, there's this ding dong that's always going on between these two groups and, and my position is to, is to say that there's uh, that there's something useful in both empiricist and sort of, Chomskyan uh, linguistic paradigms and I want to try and create a model that allows both of those to be expressed.
0: And you conclude the book on just that, that conciliatory note. Um, you make reference in particular to, to the idea of Trying to resolve the the debate between Chomsky and Piaget, mm. uh, representing respectively nativist and empiricist views of syntax, around 1980. Um, do you, how do you see that the debate has moved on since then? Is it is the time right for that? Possible are people open minded to that possibility of reconciliation? Do you think?
1: Well, I think that Chomsky and syntax is is under siege. It, it really is um, by modern neuroscience, which is so progressive. The, the results that are coming out of uh, modern neuroscience are so um, compelling and, and neuroscientists don't tend to think in, in Chomsky in terms at all. And on the other hand, the results that are coming out of modern statistical methods in computational linguistics are also incredibly fast-moving and exciting. So t- t- to some large extent, I think that the debate, if anything at the moment, is swayed towards the empiricists. But I think that there are really important insights that uh, that can be expressed within a Chomskyian model that are sort of being left out of of current models. And those have ultimately to do with how language connects to the world, even though that's not the way that uh, the Chomskyians would normally like to think about their contribution. My, my, my feeling really is that their contribution is in being able to um, state a model of language which allows for a strong statement of the relationship between language and general non-linguistic sentimental cognition, which is the same for all humans. Yeah. My, my idea is to, to incorporate within modern connectionist and statistical method, uh, and statistical models of, of, of language processing and language representation, an element of, of, of nativist representation or an, an element of nativist theory, which is, which, which harks back to, um, well, which references the Chomskyan model. So, um, yeah, your question was how has that debate moved on? And just to summarize, I think that the, 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 uh, the empiricists have the upper hand, but I, I would like to incorporate Chomskyan elements. I think it's, very, it's still very useful to try and incorporate elements of Chomskyan nativism into these empiricist models.
0: Mm-hmm. But of course, the nativist position has, has changed appreciably since then, with the advent of minimalism. I mean, to ask a a, a provocative, and perhaps rather unfair question, um, I mean, if you're right, then there are these profound uh, connections between the the, the structures of minimalism and the the structures of the sensory motor system. Despite the fact that minimalism was not articulated with those in mind, um, does it surprise you that, in some sense, that that, uh, they have happened upon something which has this possible profound unity with with the system all the way down?
1: Well, I mean, it's another really good question. I don't think it should be surprising, actually. So just you know—just grant that there are strong isomorphisms between the structure of, of language, the syntactic structure of language, and the structure of the sensory motor system. You should expect, if you're um, a minimalist linguist, or if you're any sort of linguist who's looking at building a, a parsimonious account, the structures in language, which are general across all languages, that you should identify those those structures, and, and, and consequently, you know, be describing something which is equally a description of the of the motor system. So, I think if it's true that there is, if, I mean, it's an optimistic idea that there are these strong links between language and the sensory motor system. But if there are such links, uh, then you then you, I think you do expect any any group of theorists who are working hard at, at stating in a very parsimonious way what the, the structures in language are that generalize across languages then I expect you do uh, I, I think I think you do expect them to to, to come across these things which also have essentially motor interpretation yeah I do
0: looking forward then um you talk about the objective of, of focusing research on on some of these some of these ideas some of these questions you cite at various points other work that's um, proposed fairly general unifying explanations. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of Friedemann Puhlmuller's 2003 book on the neuroscience of language. What I wonder, I mean, is it difficult? Have you found it difficult to get uh, traction for new ideas of this kind?
1: I, well, I think it is quite difficult, yeah. I, I feel quite evangelical about it, nonetheless. I feel that there's really useful ground to be gained in these kind of across the dis- disciplinary studies, and, and Paul Miller's uh, research is def- definitely pushing in this direction as well. So I, I think that there's, there's a strong community, I have to say, there's a, there's a strong community of researchers who are working in embodied models of language, and I don't think there's too much difficulty in, in getting traction in that area, in getting people interested in work at the interface between models of language and models of not linguistic sensory motor cognition. I think that's, that's quite an active research area at the moment. The area where it's a bit difficult to get traction is if you try and incorporate um, Chomsky and linguistics into the picture because um, well, psychologists, uh, sort of neuroscientists or psychologists don't tend to know much about Chomsky, which is seen as rather old fashioned. And you have to invest quite a lot uh, to understand enough about the Chomsky paradigm for it to make sense to you and for you to be able to evaluate it. So it's certainly quite a challenge to put these ideas out of front of Uh But some of them are certainly quite receptive, but it does involve a certain amount of work on their part to, to get to grips with these ideas and see if they make any sense in, in this interpretation that I'm suggesting.
0: What are the uh, top priorities as far as you're concerned for the, the next steps on this, uh, on this research programme?
1: Well, uh, I... I've I've expressed my idea about the relationship between language and non-linguistic sensory motor cognition very generally. What I basically have is a sensory motor interpretation of the X-bar schema and um, a sensory motor interpretation of a structure in which um, an X-bar schema is is, uh, adjoined to another X-bar schema as its complement. So right-branching structures of X-bar schemas, which are the most common sort of syntactic structure in LF in minimalism, I I want to say those correspond to sensory motor sequences, or maybe more generally to sequences of cognitive operations. And I just want to see if that idea is true, or I want to test that idea, by looking at other concrete sentences. So my my current work is focusing on on sentences other than cup-grasping sentences. Uh, I'm thinking quite a lot about sentences which are, are causal so for instance John opened the door as you know there's a sort of causative structure there and lots of people think that that's John caused the door to open so I'm looking at those and I'm looking at, at, at prepositional phrases as well John put the cup on the table and also slightly more abstract ones so John wanted to run or John wanted to grab the cup or things like that so basically the idea is that all of those have got so syntacticians look at those and give them analyses of at, uh, at LF, and I want to see if those LF analyses, if interpreted in sensory motor terms in the way that my general hypothesis suggests, actually correspond to anything like the processes which are actually involved in wanting to grab a cup or putting a cup on a table or opening or closing a door. So I basically I like to want to test that general idea by looking at other concrete sentences.
0: Are you uh, personally focused on the uh, modeling or the or some kind of experimental val- validation or testing um what where do you put, or are you indeed just focusing on uh trying to spread the word as far as the, the idea is concerned what what are your um, research uh, goals right now
1: well I, i'm i'm a computational linguist i'm certainly keen to and we have a model which can learn uh transitive sentence structures in in uh, in lots of different um constituent languages uh and so the Work that we do with other sentences, like these causative sentence structures, or with uh, prepositional phrases, or with um, sentences with uh, non finite complements, like John wants to grab a cup, or something like that. All of those, as, as we uh, examine those, we'll try and build computational models that ex- uh, we'll try to extend our computational model to incorporate those. And, and, and that's kind of like a, a, a story of increasing the coverage, increasing the syntactic coverage of the, of the, the small model of sentence processing mm-hmm. that we've got at the moment. And we'll be doing some empirical work as well. We we have done some experimental work in, in psychology, um, for instance, in um, in eye, eye tracking studies. But my main focus in in the book, and I think in in future work, is simply going to be in looking for formal isomorphisms between models of sensory motor processing and models of syntactic structure. So to me, that's that's a very interesting way of, of trying to create links between these bodies of theory. You just um, develop a theory of the representation of a certain sentence, an idea about the structure of a certain sentence, which is motivated purely from syntactic argumentation. For instance, you know, John grabs a cup. You can look at the syntactic structure of that and, and you know, in the way that linguists do. And then completely separately from that, build a model of the um motor processes involved in actually grabbing a cup or in actually apprehending uh, a cup grabbing episode and then having done those two bits of work entirely separately you can have a look and just compare the model of syntactic structure with a model of sensory motor processing and see if there are formal similarities or isomorphisms between them and if there are and if those similarities run deep enough then I think that's an empirical result in its own right so to me a lot of the work that I envisage doing in the future to try and see if this idea extends beyond this one example sentence we've looked at is, is in look is in seeing if there are is in exploring these these other areas you know causatives or um, prepositional phrases or whatever they happen to be anything which is concrete really and seeing if this um, if these formal isomorphisms hold up and I think if they do that, that's potentially very exciting
0: indeed yes um, well I hope they do and I look forward to hearing more about it uh, either way but for now I better say um, I'll just not thank you very much for your time thank you. I've been talking to Alistair Knott about sensory motor cognition and natural language syntax. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.